The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he licked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. 
So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Choices and decisions and mistakes, that's the kind of area we're thinking about this morning. Uh, I guess with Valentine's Day just around the corner, we had Valentine-themed cookies at the 10 o'clock congregation this morning, so there's something to live up to there. But if I might ask you, if you were to identify the worst decision you've ever made, I wonder what, what it might be. I mean, for some of us, that might be quite a painful thing to think about. Of course, for some people, wrong decisions have become very public. The oldies from England will remember a guy called Michael Fish. He was a weather forecaster, and wonderfully in 1987, earlier on today, apparently a woman ran the BBC and said there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, don't worry. And anyone who woke up the next morning, I mean, there wasn't a tree to be seen where I was. So um, that was a rather public and humiliating mistake. Dick Rowe from Decker. 1st of January 1962, um, to Mr. Epstein, guitar groups are on their way out. We won't sponsor them, the Beatles. Liz Truss, Quasi Quateng. I mean, bad decisions. You know, we've all got them. And then as a nation and corporately, what about the really bad decisions? Uh, appeasement, I think that must be up there as some of the worst decisions we've ever taken nationally. Information, of course, is absolutely key to decision-making. And everybody says, yeah, well, hindsight's a fine thing, William. And the bigger the decision, the higher the stakes and the more we want to know. And for some people, that can lead to total paralysis. You may have experienced that yourself. Well, this morning in 1 Samuel, the stakes could not be higher. There are kind of three words that really dominate the uh, chapter uh, one, uh, 16 of 1 Samuel. One is to anoint. This is a huge decision. We're talking about the Lord's anointed. A king, verse 1, to anoint, verse 3. The Lord's anointed, verse 6. Arise and anoint him. This is the one, the king. The word chosen, sorry if you're a fan of that whole thing. I had two Elsas sitting in front of me just now uh, from chosen. You know, I mean, they weren't actually from chosen, but... The word chosen is a big, big word in this chapter. So, verses 8 and 9, neither has the Lord chosen. The Lord has not chosen. The Lord has not chosen that one. But the key word, the really big one, is the word to see. And it comes nine times in the chapter in different forms. Verse 1, 6, three times in verse 7, 12, 17, 18, if you want to take notes. So this chapter is actually a chapter about sight and about seeing and about right choices, God's choice, God's sight, God's provision, God's man. And the stakes could not be higher because this is 1 Samuel. And you remember Hannah's prayer right back there at the beginning. I rejoice in your salvation. He will give strength to his king and power to the hand of his anointed for judgment. So we're talking not just about kind of little decisions that we might make as whether to invest in this or that, or who our next prime minister or the president might be, tiny decisions of that sort. Now, we're talking about decisions that have to do with heaven and hell, that have to do with salvation and damnation, that have to do with God and eternity, God's choice, God's man, God's king, God's ruler. 
And last week, we did see that God's people always make disastrous choices. Actually, that's what chapter 8 through 15 of 1 Samuel is all about, how bad our choices are. Yes, Saul is a man of God's choice, but that's a very minor theme. And God, in his sovereignty, deliberately allows the people, the man of their choice, to teach them a key lesson about the frailty and inability of us to choose the right person. And may I say, this week of all weeks, for us to be thinking about the man God chooses to lead his people, well, it's a a wonderful theme, tremendously reassuring when we have seen such disastrous choices made by those who claim to lead God's church. One, the man God chooses. Now, it's not hard in verse 1 to see why Samuel is grieving. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve? I mean, he's grieving over Saul, over the future of Israel. I think he's grieving also because Samuel knew it would end like this. Back in chapter 8, he knew it was going to end like this. And so there's a little bit of kind of, is there sulky grief? I don't know. Is there some of that there? And then he must be grieving for the future of God's people because he knows his own sons are ratbags. And now the leader of God's people, who he thought was the leader, has failed. And so is he grieving just because what's going to happen? And I guess in the grief of Samuel, there in chapter 15 and 16, he wept all night in chapter 15, we see something of um, any man or woman of God when they see kind of disastrous spiritual decisions. There is such a thing as godly grief. You may have experienced it this week. But in verse 1, God announces to Samuel that he has literally seen for himself a king. I I don't know if you know this, but I didn't. But in verse 1, at the end of the verse, for I have provided for myself a king, that word provided is actually the word I have seen for myself. It comes nine times, together with the word eyes in the chapter. Remember Jehovah Jireh, right at the beginning of the Bible, God will provide. I have provided for myself a king. No surprise then that Samuel heads off to Bethlehem with a degree of trepidation. Did you notice, how can I go if Saul hears it? He will kill me. It took great courage. When you think about Samuel for a moment, it's worth thinking about him. Godly grief and then tremendous courage to go and actually quite a degree of humility of Samuel to go yet again to anoint another one when the last one was such a disaster and quite a bit of ingenuity. He arranges to have a sacrifice, so he does it undercover. And on arrival, in verse 6 and 7, there follows something of a beauty pageant, because Jesse had eight sons, and by the time he'd done, Samuel had had all eight paraded in front of him. You can just picture it. Not this one, not this one, not this one. He's got hands on hips. Is there anybody else out there? Oh, yes, there happens to be. First up is Eliab, and he is, if you like, key for the next six, verses six and seven. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. That's the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
Don't look on his appearance or on the tallness of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man. Man looks or sees on the outward appearance, but the Lord sees on the heart. Now, that verse is key to the whole chapter. It's actually key to the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel, and I think that's a very good assessment. John Woodhouse writes the best commentary, really, on 1 and 2 Samuel, I think. This understanding of verse 7 is very important. In fact, it is, in my opinion, the key to understanding the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel. More than that, it is really the key to understanding life, the universe, and everything. So it's a pretty important verse. The trouble is there are a couple of ways of reading it. And so what I'd like us to do is to make sure we've got our thinking caps on for the next few minutes as we look at both ways of reading it and then come to a decision. One way is the traditional way. And Del Ralph Davis takes it this way, a very well-known commentator. And the traditional way is God looks into Eliab's heart, and therefore this man is not God's man because his heart is not as God would have it for his leader. God sees the heart of a man. I mean, look at how Eliab is described in verse 7. He talks about the height or the tallness of his stature. Remember how Saul was described? Very tall, same word. That word comes only four times in 1 Samuel, twice in Hannah's prayer, talk not so very tall, tall. Don't be so arrogant. So there is a play on words here. And in verse 7, well, is there something of some arrogance? He's taller than everybody else, but there's a degree of pride about him. And I think the brothers, all seven of them, represent everything we would consider, if we were to judge a person, fit to lead. And Eliab was good in the studio, great with the PR department. Did you have people like that at school with you? You know, they were good at maths, just brilliant at maths, but they could also put up deck chairs. You know, most mathematicians, they can't put up deck chairs. We all know that. But, you know, there are some people who can do everything, good at physics, good at English. They were also artistic. Then they played for the first team in rugby and football and all the rest of it. And, and, and then, really sickeningly, they were just so good-looking. And all the girls swarmed after them. And they had future leader on the way to Harvard Business School, you know, fast track to Oxbridge written all over them. But wait a moment, verse 7. You can imagine how the traditional talk on this verse goes. Actually, we don't have to imagine. Okay, so... I don't know if you noticed earlier this week, but ChatGPT is writing people's essays for them. One of my kids is a teacher, one of my in-laws, one of my children and two of my uh, children-in-law are both teachers, and ChatGPT is what teenagers, teenagers away the weekend away at the moment, so I thought I could mention this. And so I asked somebody to go online for me this week, and I thought, I've written so many sermons recently. What does ChatGPT, let's get one from them. Okay, so here is the ChatGPT sermon. You ready? David, the youngest and least impressive looking of Jesse's son, is chosen to be king. The meaning of the verse is that God values and chooses inner qualities over external appearance or social status. I say status because I assume they're American. People should not be judged on their looks or position in society, but on the quality and content of their hearts. 
The verse encourages us to see people as God sees them and to value things that are valuable to God. Well, how about that then? This verse that is the key to everything, the life, universe, and everything, and is about the choice of God's leader, turns out in the end to be a verse about us. Funny that. Here is my mark for chat GPT. I think there's some, nothing lower than a one in GCSE, but I think I'll give them a 0.5. Because actually, as you begin to explore this chapter, in verse 18, just look over the page there, Somebody in Saul's court says of David, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He's skillful in playing. He's in the school orchestra. He's a man of valor. He's very courageous. He's a man of war. He's a great tactician. He's prudent in speech. He's very wise. And he's good looking. So he looks absolutely brilliant on the face of it. He just happens to be the youngest and not very tall. So there are big problems. And yet, and yet, and yet. You know, have you read 1 Samuel before? As we go on through 1 Samuel, you're going to see that there are some amazing things about David. I, I read 1 Samuel every year. I've done for the last 30 years. Every time I come to 1 Samuel, I find myself in awe of David. So humble, so merciful, so kind, so courageous, so wise in all but one instance. And then you read the Psalms, and you find David. You save a humble people. Um, the, the person who meditates on the law, we just had it day and night. David, David, David. So David is remarkable. He's extraordinary. He's a man of unique quality, humility, kindness, compassion. And we're going to see that the man after God's, his heart. How wrong is chat GPT? Now, there's another way. I know I'm slightly playing with us, but we need to just think and keep our gray cells. Um, do you know, I was speaking once as a young curate, and um, a bloke <laughs> came to me afterwards. I said, oh, I love your preaching, William. And I thought, oh, well, that's you know, it's sort of thing, a young curate. I was beginning to feel a bit tall, tall. And uh, he said to me, you know, I really like it. It gives me a chance just to switch off completely and empty my mind of everything and just think, you know, well, there we go. So I hope you come to church to think. Here's the other way of thinking about this verse. And it is a way of seeing it as actually referring to God's heart. So I jotted down the actual literal translation there, 7b, uh, under your first point on the sheet. The Lord sees not as man. Man sees according to the eyes. The Lord sees according to the heart. Whose heart? Could it be that the Lord sees according to the Lord's own heart, that this is the man of God's choice? Now, this is going to surprise you, Samuel. You may have preferred to choose Eliab, Samuel. Samuel, you the seer, are you sure you're seeing right? God makes the choices. It's he's the one who's going to choose. He sees according to his own heart. Ah, oh, you say, William, you're really stretching things a bit here, and that's a bit obtuse and tricky. Just turn back a couple of pages with you to chapter 13 and verse 14, page 283. You're going to have to work, so make sure your neighbor is not uh, yawning. I can see somebody yawning over there, so make sure they're not yawning. And flick back to chapter 13 and verse 14. 
The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him, him to be prince over his people. Listen to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Don't bother turning to it. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about the greatness of my kingdom, says David. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Our chapter. I have seen. I have seen for myself. I've chosen him. He's my king. After my heart. Could it be that? One writer puts it like this. This has nothing to do with any great fondness of God for David or any special quality of David. Rather, it emphasizes the free divine selection of the heir to the throne. It's God's choice who he has as king. Now, if that's it, you can see the power of what is going on here. You've had 8 through 15, human choice. We always choose what's bad for us. That's what God taught us through Saul. Remember the worst choice you've ever made? How good at choosing are you really? Not really very good. I'm not. I think of some of the hopeless choices I've made. But God has a man, the man of his own choice. And because he sees clearly, he chooses perfectly. Now, I put this kind of um, to Henry early, and I said, you know, I think really it could be a bit of both. Henry said to me, Henry Etoch Taylor, who leads the Mandarin, he said, oh, you're being cakeist. Uh, to be cakeist is to want to have your cake and eat it. And I want to suggest there's something both in, if you like, the traditional view, and, and I don't think that's a wrong thing. When a verse could possibly mean both things, we've got to hold it in our mind that God might deliberately have ordered it so, so that we can see kind of two sides to a coin. I mean, Andrew Reid puts it like this. Our view here is that within the larger narrative, both perspectives need to be held together. I'm sorry if that upsets you, but I think it has to be right. Think about it. What if God's heart really is different to ours? Well, if God's heart were like ours, then we've really got something to worry about. But if God's heart really is different to ours, and if the man of God's choice really is the man who is humble, meek, gentle, kind, filled with grace, compassionate, obedient, courageous, faithful, what if it's actually God who does the choosing rather than us? And in his sovereign free decision, he chooses a leader for us. What if God chooses a man who is good? We know how bad our choices are. We've admitted it, I hope, unless we're extraordinarily tall, tall. And the Israelites, when they read this, would be saying to themselves, yeah, well, we chose Saul. Yeah, God allowed it, but we chose the big man who was good on telly, and it was an absolute shambles. And now we have a man of God's choice. Okay, someone might say, well, surely, do you know, I ought to have a part in choosing the spiritual leader of God's people, shouldn't I? Why? In a thousand million years, why should you and I have a part in choosing the leader of God's people? 
I mean, who have we chosen to lead us recently? Tony? Boris? Dave? Maggie? Uh, you're here as an American, you're saying to yourself, well, we didn't choose any of them. Yeah, hang on a second. Donald? And you say, well, I didn't actually choose him. Sleepy Joe? I mean, come on. How good are you at choosing, please? Isn't it wonderful that the Lord should choose a man of his own choice after his heart, who is humble and gentle, to lead us? And can we not stop being so very tall, tall, arrogant, and refusing to surrender to his lead. And somebody might say, well, do you know, I've been burned by spiritual leaders whom I've encountered, and that may well be so, and I'm really sorry if that is the case. But what if the leader whom God has chosen is actually kind and compassionate and good and pure and faithful and full of integrity, a man after his own heart? Wouldn't you follow him? And does not the fact that God's spiritual leader is a man of his choice rather than ours fill us with confidence, especially in a week like this, where those who purport to be leaders of the church of God have made such suicidal choices, such tall, tall choices, We'd rather go our own way, says all but four of the House of Bishops. Extraordinary. And isn't it wonderful that we have a leader who will not be overthrown, a leader who is not of human choice, a leader whose head will not swell with pride as he gets too big for his socks, a leader who will not use his power abusively. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, well, somebody might say, look, it's all very well choosing a leader, but, you know, what about events? You know what people say about events? You've got your leader, but events is everything, isn't it? And I think that's where the next part of the chapter fits in, and it's so intriguing. It's really a separate sermon on its own. I just want to, to include this because it's, again, I think enormously reassuring and strengthening for us. Verses 14 through 23, they're absolutely fascinating even as God the Holy Spirit departs from Saul, Ichabod departs, so God's Holy Spirit descends on David. And as God the Holy Spirit descends on David, so a harmful spirit from the Lord descends on Saul. I think the footnote is better than, I'm told the footnote is much better as a translation. It's not an evil spirit, so much a harmful spirit. And the harmful spirit is a spirit of melancholy, of some sort of mental affliction. It doesn't mean that if you find yourself laboring under depression or some sort of mental affliction, then it's a harmful spirit from God. That doesn't mean that. It might be in some instances, but this is a one-off event where God delivers that to Saul. And the key is in that little word, see again. Look at verse 17. So Saul said to his servants, see for me, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, behold, I have 
seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who's skilled in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Now, this is just so kind of neat. Who would have known this? Saul appears to get melancholic and depressed, and he needs someone for music therapy. And so he says to his helper, find one of the best music... Oh, I know a bloke. His name is David. Uh, He doesn't actually tell us his name at that point, but he's a son of Jesse, and look at him. He's a man of... What is he? He's he's a man who's skillful in playing, and he's got more hits eventually than um, Harry Styles. Uh, Sorry, One Direction is a rock group, but he's got more hits than Harry Styles. He's got better lyrics than Beyonce. Uh, He's an extraordinary guy. When you think of David eventually, and he's brought into the very heart of the kingdom, into the heart of the kingly court, apparently purely by chance. So that here you've got this David, who Saul once seen, who has been seen, and now the man whom God saw comes to be Saul's armor bearer, the closest man of all to the king. I mean, it's just genius. Well, I think we can draw things together. Of all the weeks in the history of St. Helens, for us to be considering this passage is remarkable. I mean, some of you are actually in some of the discussions this week in the House of Bishops. You will be, I expect, deeply grieved. We've had messages of support and encouragements from bishops and archbishops and Christian leaders and friends from all over the world. An American archbishop has written to me, say he's going to be over in a particular few weeks, and he's delighted to come and see us and will support us in whatever way he can. Uh, We will have discussions on Saturday the 25th, a church discussion in St. Peter's about what's going on and uh, amongst the women's groups on March the 8th. But for now, for now, for now, God has a man. God is in charge. Uh, We make hopeless decisions. In fact, we make tall, tall decisions. Uh, We've seen some tall, tall decisions this week extraordinary arrogance to think that you will step apart from the Word of God. You cannot get more arrogant than that. But in the midst of the tall, tall decisions, God has a man, and his name is Jesus. And you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, the words that were spoken of Jesus, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him, the man of God's choice. And remember right back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 22, God, Abraham says of God, he has provided for himself. He has seen the same word. It's a derivative of the same word. He has seen for himself a sacrifice. And so as Jesus steps onto the world, everything, I mean, David did ultimately fail. He was only human. But as Jesus steps into the world, here we have the man whom God has seen his chosen one, the man who God provided, Genesis 22, as the sacrifice, the one who is his king, whose heart is after God's heart. And 
of all weeks to hear that, and that God sovereignly orders things such that his man is in his place at his time to achieve his purposes. Isn't that assuring and strengthening and comforting? And if Church of England politics is not your thing, which I entirely sympathize with, uh, we began with choices. And we talked about bad choices. And let me say, I've got plenty of my own. And I think as you get older, you begin to remember the bad choices you made. I mean, in God's providence, there have been some wonderful choices. <laughs> but I think of decisions, and many of them will be moral, bad choices. And I think as you get older, you remember those. And to know that there is a man of God's choice, whom God has seen provided as a sacrifice, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Is that not of extraordinary comfort for Israel after their disastrous choice? And I hope for all of us. So I'm going to say a prayer for us. And then I guess we'll sing. Let's pray. Our Father, we can only come to you in humility because our seeing is so poor and failed. We thank you, our Father in heaven, that you see clearly and so choose perfectly. We thank you that you have chosen your king, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the perfect man of your choice in every way, that his heart is after your heart and he is a man of your own heart. Please grant every one of us the humility to listen to him. In Jesus' name, amen.